0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show...
1: Labor government has traditionally supported community services like community radio, so I think it's a real opportunity for Labor to get behind and be at the forefront of creating new innovations, supporting the digital Opportunities we have.
0: Multicultural broadcasters from across Australia could be in line for millions of dollars in funding if submissions from two community radio peak bodies succeed. What could a financial boost mean for the sector? Also, the Tasmanian government has called an election a year earlier, with Tasmanians set to head to the polls next month. What are most wanting from their government? And later in the show.
2: With more air pollution related deaths in New Zealand than Australia last year. You had to scratch your head and look at Australia and go, well, you know, something's wrong here. How can there be a cogent reason why New Zealand would have more air pollution-related deaths than Australia?
0: The Australian Government's announcements on new fuel efficiency standards are geared towards improving transport emissions. But it's not just about reducing effects on climate. Is there also a hidden health benefit? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... The housing war continues with the Help to Buy scheme up for its second round of debates in Parliament this week. The scheme, a promise from the Albanese government at the 2022 federal election, is a form of co-ownership, offering a contribution of up to 40%. The government says the scheme will bring home ownership back in reach for 40,000 low-income Australians. To pass, Labor likely needs the Greens' support, but the Greens say they will not back the scheme, demanding significant changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax discount. National Radio News political correspondent Noah Seacombe spoke with housing spokesperson from the Greens, Max Chandler-Mathod, to find out more.
3: What's your biggest concerns around the help to buy scheme in the current housing crisis?
4: Well, right now, the government are proposing a scheme that will only help 0.2% of renters every year buy a home. And for the other 99.8% of renters, their scheme will actually drive up house prices, which in the context of one of the worst housing crises this country has faced in generations, we think is a really bad idea. Now, In practical terms, what will happen is one of the few lucky people that win the government's new housing lottery, in effect, the 0.2%, they'll have more money to bid up the price of housing at an auction. For every other renter at that auction trying to buy a home who doesn't have access to that scheme, well, the house price will be pushed out of reach again, which is exactly why, by the way, we are pushing so hard on phasing out the big tax handouts for property investors like negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount, because 1st home buyers are already screwed over by a tax system that often pushes house prices out of reach.
3: And so when it comes to, like the Greens are also calling for the changes to negative gearing and Mm -hmm. capital gains tax, what impacts do you think, like, believe the negative gearing is having on property markets at present with investors? So,
4: So basically what negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount are are big tax handouts For property investors, all up these all sorts of tax handouts from the government for property investors will cost the federal budget half a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And what they are is essentially a huge incentive and a massive stimulus paycheck to property investors to bid up the price of housing. In practical terms, again, I think the auction is a great way to think about it. If you are facing an investor at an auction, Well, they get access to these big tax handouts that a renter trying to buy their first home doesn't, which means regularly people have the experience of thinking they've saved up enough money to buy a house, and then all of a sudden along comes a property investor who is able to use these tax handouts to bid up the price of housing. And that's why we have, since the year 2000, when the capital gains tax discount was introduced by the Howard government, on average, house prices have increased more than two times every year that of wages, which is just a completely unsustainable system, exactly why we think we should phase them out.
3: See, the thing with a lot of this discussion is it sounds like really obvious and simple sort of Mm. moving money from one select group to everyone. Yes. Why is it so hard to get this
4: through? I think a few reasons. I think there's some very powerful interests that rely on the housing system working in a way that generates enormous profits for a few big groups. The big banks are heavily invested in the housing market. They make billions and billions of dollars of house prices continuing to go up, and property investors taking out mortgages and continuing to bid up the price of housing. Property developers also make a lot of money, and also property investors. And let's be real. you know, Right now, the federal Labor government, well, 75% of all Labor parliamentarians are property investors. It's about 65% of coalition MPs are property investors. And I think the public looks pretty poorly on the two major parties refusing to touch the massive tax handouts that uh, a lot of their government members benefit from.
3: And so back to the help to buy sort of scheme, the way that it's limited to 40,000 places Mm. over four years, it's a drop in the ocean, really. If it gets through as is, do you think that, like, what do you see happening from that? Do you think it'll be revisited or do you think it'll be a do it and leave it?
5: I reckon
4: they'll do it and leave it. They haven't even answered some very basic detailed questions about help to buy. What happens if you uh, there's the, right now to access this scheme you have to earn under uh, a certain amount of money if you're a couple or an individual? What happens if after a year after buying your property, you get a pay rise and you get above that? The government actually hasn't said what happens then. Are you forced to sell? They don't know. What happens if you have to make renovations? Does the government chip in a little bit on those renovations? What happens if you have to make repairs on the house? They actually haven't answered a lot of these questions. So it's not even clear how the scheme would actually work.
0: National Radio News political correspondent Noah Seacomb, speaking with housing spokesperson from the Greens, Max Chandler-Mathers. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has called an election a year earlier than scheduled, and Tasmanians will go to the poll on March 23rd. The call follows as two Liberal-turned-independent state MPs refuse to sign an agreement to support the government's work. But there's many more issues Tasmanians want the next government to address. The wise Eduardo Jordan asked Deputy Director and Senior Research Fellow at the Tasmanian Policy Exchange, Dr Robert Hortle, his thoughts around the Premier's election Cole?
6: So I think it could have been a good play if he'd, if he'd made the decision really decisively. But I think unfortunately for him, the way he's made the decision and gone about it has kind of weakened his position. So for a bit of context, an election had sort of been on the card since two Liberal MPs, Government MPs moved to the crossbench last year. And Rockcliffe recently issued the two with an ultimatum. So that was on February 1, saying that they'd need to support all government legislation going forward. And then he met with them a week later, but they couldn't reach an agreement. Then Rockcliffe later met with his cabinet on Tuesday of this week and finally called the election yesterday. So we had this sort of couple of weeks of of posturing and and vacillation, I guess, from the, the Premier whenever a new election had become inevitable.
5: So, the election has been called a year earlier because of an issue with two independent MPs. What do we know about these issues?
6: So the the main issue that caused uh, the two MPs, Lara, Alexander and John Tucker, to defect was alleged lack of transparency around the proposed AFL stadium that is apparently going to be built in Hobart and also around the Marinus Link project, which will conduct electricity and telecommunications between Tasmania and Victoria. So they were upset about the lack of transparency around those two big projects. But since then, there've been a range of other issues that have sparked fights between them and their former party, the government. So that's been things like John Tucker demanding um, that we install CCTV cameras in abattoirs uh, to prevent animal cruelty. And also, Lara Alexander has been asserting that the Liberal Party, um, she recently said, is like an abusive partner and has some big problems with its treatment of female MPs.
5: Okay, and what are the hard issues that will be critical to this election, do you think?
6: Well, I don't think Tasmanian independence is uh, is going to come up this time around. So um, we'll be back to the usual issues, lack of affordable housing, the cost of living, hospitals, in particular wait times at emergency. We have really big challenges around that in Tasmania. And of course, the stadium is a very controversial issue in Tasmania, where it should be built, who's going to pay for it, all that sort of thing. Also, Who can deliver a strong majority government is always a hot-button issue in Tasmania. Something else that uh, just came up this morning actually was the budget deficit in Tasmania is about $200 million more than expected. So there could be some debate around economic management as well.
5: Rebecca White is a Labour leader in Tasmania, and I understand it's very early to know uh, the policies from each political party. But are there some promises made beforehand from labor in Tasmania? Yeah,
6: Rebecca White's uh, come out of the gates pretty hot on electricity prices. So she said that she'll be looking to cut electricity prices and and reduce them in the longer term and eventually, I think, cap them as well. And she's also stated on that controversial stadium that Labor will seek to renegotiate Tasmania's deal with the AFL on the stadium. So she said that Labor supports having an AFL team in Tasmania, but they're not happy with the balance of finance um, with that deal.
5: Now, Tasmania is the only liberal state left, almost well, all the states and territories are uh, Labour. Uh, from your expertise, do you think Labour could take over or is it 50-50 at this time? And also the Jackie Lambie's party, how will that influence the state election too?
6: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and Look, it's a really tough ask for Labor to get to the required number of seats to form a majority government. So Tasmania's lower house is actually being restored from 25 seats currently to its former glory of 35 seats at this election, which means that Labor or the Liberals will need 18 seats to form majority government. But given Labor's only got eight seats currently and the Liberals are sort of in a fair bit of internal chaos, that target of 18 seats looks like a real stretch for either party. As you mentioned, the Greens and the Jackie Lambie network are going to be key players, but there's also a few independents that are going to be really important as well. And then in terms of Jackie Lambie, um, her network has announced three candidates so far in, in three of Tassie's five electorates. So they could pick up a couple of seats, but it's got to be said that some of the polling showing them with strong support is a pretty small sample size. So even though Labor and the Liberals are both really keen to say that they're not going to do deals with minority parties or independents, they're probably going to have to if they want to form government.
0: Dr Robert Hortle from the University of Tasmania speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan.
5: Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme.
0: The federal government has announced two new fuel standards aimed at improving the impact of transport emissions. But it's not just about reducing climate impacts. Is there a hidden health benefit found in improving Australia's car fuels? Matthew ward Aegis reports.
7: The federal government says Australians will be getting more bang for their buck come January 1 next year, when its new vehicle efficiency standards come into effect. It says those standards would save motorists about $1,000 on their petrol bill each year. And it comes on the back of a similar announcement that would introduce a fuel quality standard aimed at reducing noxious emissions. The policies have been welcomed too, enthusiastically by environmental advocates and cautiously by automotive and consumer groups.
8: The overall premise of it is to try and catch up on essentially what the rest of the world is doing and what we should have been doing for more than a decade.
7: That's Mark Borlace, future mobility specialist at the Royal Automobile Association in South Australia.
8: The change to the, in the federal Labor government has meant that they've got a, an agenda to at least try and match some of the world and the emission standards and to do that you need your fuel refineries to have a, a different process for making cleaner fuels and you've got to start to incentivise cleaner cars coming to Australia, or, looking the other way, disincentivise heavy polluters from coming to Australia because Australia has been going against the trend.
7: Borlay says that trend has been for the average Australian car to grow in size, compared to most other markets where they've been shrinking, including the big-truck-loving United States. The Australian government is looking towards a US-style standard. Over there, the new passenger and light commercial car fleet averages about 170 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre. In Australia, it's nearly 10 grams higher. Over the course of a year, that works out to around an extra 110 kilograms of CO2 per car on average. Across all cars on the road, that's a million tonnes of carbon that could be avoided. Australia's fuel efficiency standards will work like those in other countries, where automakers aim to keep the emissions of the cars they sell below a threshold.
8: And if that average is below or above a certain number, if it's below the grams per kilometre, you'll get a credit. If it's above, you'll pay a penalty of around $100 per gram for every car you sell. Now, that line, where that line is going to be, hasn't been drawn yet. And the government are saying within the next month after they've said, this is the approach we're gonna take, we'll show you where the line's gonna be. And then we'll have a better understanding of what that means for individual manufacturers.
7: Borlase says it's likely that carmakers will opt for low-emissions electric vehicles to bring their averages down. But while environmental groups have welcomed more efficiency and automotive groups are waiting to see what it means for their top-selling petrol SUVs, one issue that has flown under the radar is the health impact. The federal government says its new standards would save Australia $6.1 billion in health and fuel costs until 2040. Quality standards are designed to reduce pollutants being emitted from vehicle exhausts, and more efficient vehicles should mean less of those materials are leaving the tailpipe as well. Claire Walter is a public health PhD candidate at Melbourne University's School of Population and Global Health. Last year, she co-authored a paper on the health impacts associated with traffic emissions in Australia. It came as Australia was found to have fewer premature deaths from air pollution than New Zealand. A smaller country with fewer people and fewer cars.
2: I mean, when New Zealand came out with more air pollution-related deaths in New Zealand than Australia last year, you had to scratch your head and look at Australia and go, "Well, you know, something's wrong here. How can there be a cogent reason why New Zealand would have more air pollution-related deaths in Australia?"
7: She says the difference comes down to accounting. New Zealand considers two types of tailpipe emissions in air pollution deaths. One is toxic particulate matter called PM2.5. The others are nitrous oxides. Australia, on the other hand, traditionally considers only PM2.5 in its counting.
2: Australia's been using very outdated data methods that have biased our results towards underestimating.
7: New Zealand attributed just under 3,500 premature deaths to air pollution. When the New Zealand methodology is applied to Australia, Walter found more than 11,000 Australians would die prematurely from air pollution each year, a figure that the Albanese government is now using. So, Claire Walter, why are nitrous oxides so bad for human health?
2: We know nitrous oxides are the best surrogate for vehicle pollution, um, but the most specific... To vehicles in urban environments and we also know nitrogen dioxide itself has inflammatory effects so we inhale it it increases inflammatory markers in the lungs it causes you know immediate difficulties um, in people who are sensitive with breathing it increases the risk of both upper and lower respiratory tract infections but it also causes systemic inflammation and why that's really important is it puts our whole body under stress
7: Walter expects the introduction of improved fuel quality and emission standards will have a measurable health benefit.
2: Yeah, they should improve health outcomes significantly in Australia particularly with regards to children and respiratory impacts i think we should be able to see measurable improvements fairly quickly if they're implemented you know in a meaningful way you know just transient exposures uh, to vehicle exhaust particularly nitrogen dioxide is associated with a marked increase in asthma exacerbations in children And, you know, if we have cars with lower sulphur content, they're going to be emitting um, much less gaseous pollutants, including sulphur dioxide and particles, which we know cause these asthma exacerbations. Um, And long-term improvement uh, over time will be significant as well.
0: Public health PhD candidate from Melbourne University, Claire Walter, ending that report from Matthew Ward-Ages. Ethnic and multicultural broadcasters around the country could be in line for millions of dollars in extra funding if submissions from two community radio peak bodies are successful. The National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council has joined the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia in asking the federal government for more money ahead of this year's budget. Stephen Stockwell has this report.
9: There's been a lot of change for community radio stations over the last few years, which, amid funding shortfalls, have prompted these pitches. The Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, the CBAA, is asking the government to double its funding from around $20 million a year to over 40 million. The National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council, the NEMBC, has made its own pitch, asking for $2.6 million. Russell Anderson, the CEO of the NEMBC, says this extra funding is something ethnic and multicultural broadcasters really need at the moment.
1: We're moving into a whole new stage of production with people post-COVID. We're sort of reviewing how we're doing things and what we need to do.
9: The CBAA has recently released a new 10-year plan and Russell likes how it is lent on that to explain the need for more funding. He says the NEMBC submission, which is asking for more money to run training, for news production and to support refugees and new communities, is complementary.
1: It ties really well with the roadmap and it links very much with the CBAAs, which is what we're trying to achieve across the sector as well, to have those linkages and that commonality where we're all speaking on the one voice and unity, while also just recognising all of our diverse sector.
9: Russell says there are plenty of challenges facing the sector over the next decade as it recovers from COVID and looks to the future. He says there are exciting digital developments to be explored and that it's important for migrants and refugees to have support to find their voice on radio. He's hopeful that will make these funding pitches quite attractive to government.
1: Labor government has traditionally supported community services like community radio, So I think it's a real opportunity for Labor to get behind and be at the forefront of creating new innovation, supporting the digital opportunities we have.
9: In recent years, the funding model for community radio stations has failed to keep pace with rising costs, leaving the sector $5 million worse off a year. Stations apply for funding through grants, but the sector hasn't had the money to fund all the applications that it's had from stations. It's been short about $10 million a year for the last seven years. Rhys Canane from the CBAA says there have been some measures to address rising costs, but more is needed.
7: Last year, the Albanese government secured our funding uh, at current levels and committed to keeping up with costs from now on. But funding levels currently remain insufficient to meet the very high demand from stations for grants to help them serve their community and have a positive impact.
9: Reese was in Parliament House in Canberra last week, making the case directly to politicians for more money. He's hopeful that the CBAA pitch for an extra $20 million a year will be successful.
1: It's always a hard fight
7: to get funding out of government. We have a very passionate champion for the sector in in the Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland. Uh, So she's endorsed our plan for greater impact and we hope she will champion the case for more funding from government to help us achieve it. What are our chances? Look, the odds are, are better than they have been in recent years.
9: While a funding pitch in the tens of millions of dollars might seem like a lot... John Buterick, a senior lecturer in the Department of Media at the University of Adelaide, says ethnic and multicultural broadcasters are worthy recipients. He says they've struggled financially for a long time, despite the vital role they play in Australia.
10: Ethnic media can provide really important information and news to their community, which is actually incredibly vital for people who are both new to Australian society, but who have also been here for a long time.
9: John feels the sector is particularly well-placed to deliver on social inclusion programs, saying it's a great place to build feelings of belonging and community.
10: This can work both through um, the audience of the radio and hearing their own stories and other stories as well through radio, but also through people, particularly young people uh, amongst um, minority and ethnic and migrant communities who come into the stations and actually produce their own work and have a meaningful role in producing cultural content that is significant to them and, and to their communities.
9: While we do have access to information in so many different places now, especially online, John says that community radio still has a really important role to play.
10: Radio is is a very powerful medium for community development uh, and bringing people together. And community radio is often one of the few sites where different groups can come in and have ready access to equipment to produce their own media and their own voices. Um, and uh, 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 target a, a specific audience in their own languages.
0: Senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide, Dr John Butterick, ending that story with Stephen Stockwell. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3 Z in Naam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.